The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Take your Bibles again, the book of Ephesians in chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to read from verse 16 down to verse 32, just for the context. 17 down to 32. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians and he says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding and excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another." Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification." according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Let's pray, shall we? Loving Father, I'm reminded reminded again that apart from you, we can accomplish nothing. And Father, as we come before the Word of God with it open before us, we pray, O God, for your help. We pray, O God, that the Spirit of God will give the words, but also, Father, give hearts to hear, to understand, to listen to what you would say to us through the reading of your Word. Father, we seek your blessing and we ask you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Spirit of God is writing through the pen of Paul to the Ephesians, and his purpose is to describe the church, the new community of faith. And he has described the new life that we have in Christ in chapters 1 through chapter 2 and verse 10. The new community created in Christ Jesus, he's described from 2 and verse 11 all the way to 3 and verse 21. And he has begun to describe how we are to live as new creatures in Christ in that new community from 4 and verse 1 and onward. Now last week we saw that to live as Christ-like, we must put off the ungodly old man with his futile way of thinking, his ignorance, his darkened understanding, being alienated from God and so on. And we must put on the godly new man, which is created according to God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And that brings us to our passage for this morning. The Christian life is a cross-shaped life. God first makes things right between us and himself in a vertical sense, and then God calls us to live in a right relation with everybody else in a horizontal sense. We will not enjoy a a right, restored human relationships until our relationship with God has been changed, has been restored and put right. 
God saved us not merely to change our post-death destination. God saved us to live not for ourselves, but for Christ. He did not save us to live just like the ungodly world. God saved you and I to be little Christ in the world. He saved us as individuals, but he saved us into a body. God saved us to be members of the body of Christ, and he saved us to be members of each other. We have a connection, a relationship with each other because of Jesus Christ and his blood. We live as members of the same community, the same body, and how we live corporately in that body, the new community of faith, displays the reality of our individual relationships with God. And Paul is answering the question, what does putting off the old man and putting on the new man look like in some very practical ways? This is Christianity lived out in the new community of faith in the church. Now, I want you to note carefully the context here. He is speaking about the body of Christ. If you look in 4 and verse 2, and then 4 and verse 25, and 4 and verse 32, and 5 and verse 19, and 5 and verse 21, the phrase, one another, comes up all through those phrases. He is speaking about relationships of Christians with Christians inside the body of Christ. The question is asked to be asked, why did Paul write this under the Spirit of God's inspiration? And the answer is because as new creatures in Christ's new community in the church, we need to learn how we are to get along. We need to learn how we are to live out our new creature status and lifestyle with each other. We need, we must live Christ-like with each other in his church, in the body. And the great tragedy of the church is the striking lack of Christ-like behavior displayed by those who are called into it. I don't know if you're like me, but there are times when you look around the church and then you look at some of your non-Christian friends and you think to yourself, some of my non-Christian friends could teach my Christian friends and me how to live like Christians. And it's a sad reality, but there are times when it is very true. We organize and lead churches with corporate ungodly mentality instead of sound biblical principles from Scripture. We seek to use modern psychology instead of biblical counseling to help those who are struggling within the church. We excuse and accept ungodly and sinful behavior and habits simply because we don't want to offend or upset somebody and they might just leave our church and leave with bad feelings. And so we let things go. We look overlook things that we should not overlook. Christ called us out of the world and into his kingdom and his church. Christ gave us principles and practices that he desired from us that they please him and maintain the health of his church. He prescribed how it is we are to live and worship and function together as a body. Men and women, brothers and sisters, we are new creatures in Christ. We are not revived, restored old creatures. We have been made new in Jesus Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old is gone. All things have become new. And we are to live as new creatures in Christ-like ways. So we've got to put off the old man and put on the new man. We've got to be renewed in the spirit of our minds as we saw last week. And here this week is how it works itself out in the daily practice of Christ, of our, our Christian life. Now I want you to notice in the text there are three motives that the Spirit gives us through Paul's pen. If you look in verse number 32, you will see he says... The last part of the verse, that God in Christ has forgiven you. One of the reasons we are to live this way is because we've been forgiven of sin by God. Then look back up at verse number 30. And you'll see there, he says that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. So we have been forgiven and we've been sealed with God's Holy Spirit. We have the filling of the Spirit as we go through this life in order to live this life. 
And then notice verse number 25, he says, For we are members of one another, or because we are members of one another. Those three motives go together to give the reason why we have to live this new Christian life in the body in the way that he prescribes, putting off the old and putting on the new. Now, if you pulled out my little note sheet there, and I saw one of you a second ago looking at the front page and frowning, no, I have not forgotten how to count. The, the points go one, two, six. Okay, I've, I've worked on my numbers. I've worked on my letters. I'm, I'm getting better. I'm using the, the chalkboard in there to practice, but I have not forgotten how to count. Flip over to the back side, and you'll see there's six statements there on the back side. If you look, you'll see number one and number two and number six have got the bold text, and now you start to understand what we're doing. What there is in this passage in front of us, there are six commands about how we are to live this Christian life. Well, we're not going to cover all six in one message. It's not possible. So what I've done is I've picked three that I want to cover this week, and we may cover the other three next week. I emphasize that we may cover. We may not. We may just move on. But let's go through all six of them very briefly. If you want, you can go home and take those six statements and unpack them for yourself. Get out a Bible study book, get some concordances, and unpack how it is that you can put on and put off each of those things. So number one, looking at the back side of your sheet there, you'll see the outline there. Number one, in verse 25, we must live in Christ-like truthfulness which means we must put off falsehood and put on speaking truth. Secondly, in verses 26 and verse 27, we must allow Christ-like anger. So we must put off uncontrolled, brooding anger, and we must put on Christ-like anger. That's without sin. That's one of the most difficult and misunderstood verses in the Bible, and we are going to spend some time unpacking that one this morning. Number three, verse 28, we must produce Christ-like labor so we put off stealing for selfish gain and we put on hard work that we might provide for one another's needs. And then number four, verse 30, we must engage in Christ-like speaking so we must put off unwholesome words or the word literally is put off rotten words from out of your mouth and put on speech that builds up and imparts grace to one another as we hear it. Fifthly, verses 30 and 31, we must display, display Christ-like attitudes that do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So we must put off the ungodly works of the flesh and we must put on or allow to be born out of us the fruit of the Spirit. And sixthly, finally, verse 32, we must exercise Christ-like forgiveness. So we must put off Put off a self-centered, unforgiving heart and put on a God-centered heart of forgiveness. Again, we can never cover all six of these. I tried to, but the not pages were getting more and more and more and more and more. And we have a QBM and we were going to have a lunch and that would just never have worked. So we've cut the lunch out and I've just still cut off half the message. But I want to focus on number one, number two, and number six, because I think they're absolutely key. And we may come back to the other three next week. We must live, number one, verse 25, in Christ-like truthfulness. He says, laying aside falsehood, we are to speak the truth, speak the truth, each with his neighbor. And gosh, who do we look to for an example in all of these things? We look to the Lord Jesus, don't we? He is the perfect example of what it means to speak the truth. Now, he had no falsehood to put off, but we can certainly see his example and how he spoke the truth. John 1.14 says, Jesus Christ displayed his glory in grace and truth. He never once sacrificed truth for grace or grace for truth. I said that so many times, but I just, I love that sense. That every time he spoke, it was a grace to the person who heard. And he never once tempered or put aside truth so he wouldn't hurt somebody's feelings or wouldn't deal unfairly or unkindly. He just spoke truth and he spoke it in a gracious way. When he was asked a question, Jesus graciously answered with truth. 
when they attempted to trick him or set him up to trap him, Jesus responded in truth and in grace. When the high priest made a charge at Jesus during his trial to tell whether he was indeed the Son of God, Jesus responded in great grace and in great truth. Jesus Christ is always our best example for how we are to live and behave. And so sadly, brothers and sisters, do we turn to somebody else or look at someone else's life and as an example of how we should live. But we have the greatest example in Christ himself. We are to live as new creatures in Christ. We are to deal in truth. We have been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Look what he says in verse number 24. And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We are to live and we are to speak truth. In verse 25, we're to put off. Lay aside falsehood. It's the idea of taking off, like taking off a robe or a garment and putting it away from us. We're to discontinue a habitual falsehood in actions and in words. And that word falsehood can include a whole bunch of different things. Lying to one another. We're to put it off. Deceit and every form of hypocrisy. If you show up to church or show up to fellowship or show up to Bible study and you have a certain persona that you have kind of put on, but when you get home, you take it off and hang it in the closet and go and do what everybody else does and just live any way you please. There's hypocrisy there. We're to put it off. Falsehood includes exaggeration. And I've told you a million times, don't exaggerate, which of course is exaggeration. Anytime we do that, we're putting on falsehood. We're putting on falsehood when, when we gossip and when we slander and when we use flattery with one another. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Listen, falsehood will entangle us over and over and over again. And Paul says, put it off. Put off falsehood and speak the truth with one another. But it's not enough. To merely put off falsehood, we must also put on. Just like we saw last week, we put off the old man so we can put on the new. So we put on speaking the truth. Paul is quoting Zechariah chapter 16 and verses, uh, 8 verses 16 and 17 in this passage. And he says this, These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Also, let none of you devise evil in your heart against another and do not love perjury. For all these things are what I hate, declares the Lord. We're to put them off because they're what the Lord hates. Our desire is to please him. We're new creatures in Christ. We're living in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are to be striving as God gives us the strength to follow Christ and we are to speak the truth with each other. Which means, by the way, we speak the truth to each other and we speak the truth about each other. I mentioned it before about gossip. But brothers and sisters, so much damage has been done inside the church by the church itself through the spreading of gossip. Gossip will tear apart a church. Well, you know, I really shouldn't say, but. So what did you hear about this? Well, I heard this. Well, you, well, you know, so-and-so, he believes this and he believes that and, oh, we just can't have that and, oh, you know. It's all gossip. It's something that you would not say to that person if you're standing right there, either positive or negative. And it will tear apart a church. It will build up walls between people as people distrust. And all of a sudden, everything that Christ has done to reconcile us both to himself and to each other is being eroded and torn away because we start talking about one another and gossiping behind one another's back. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 15. I find it such a challenge. But listen to what he says in the first two verses. He says, O Lord... Who may abide in your tent and who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks or lives 
with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. We must fill our hearts with the truth of God's word and we must speak that truth in grace and in love for each other. We have been created in holiness of the truth and we are to speak the truth as those have been reconciled together in Christ to God. We live as new creatures in a new community by speaking truth as Christ did. So we put off falsehood. We put on speaking the truth, each with his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Just as surely as a cell that gets in the body like a cancer cell and begins to fight against the body must be dealt with. So when a member of the body of Christ begins to speak against another person or speak falsehood and fail to speak truth, it's a cancer in the body that has to be dealt with. We are members of one another. We must speak the truth because when we speak truth, it glorifies God and pleases the God who saves us. It also displays the grace of God that forgives and changes us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, put off the old man. Put on the new man. Live Christ's life by putting off falsehood and speaking the truth. Secondly, from verses 26 and verse 27, we must allow Christ-like anger. I want to read the verses again to you. Verse 26 and 27 say this, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. I want you to notice verse 26, the first word there be in my verse, my version can actually be rendered more like allow or become angry. It's it's a passive verb, which means it happens to us. We don't become angry as a choice. It's something that happens to us. And I want to unpack it because it's important that we understand what those verses mean. Being Christ-like as new creatures includes how we deal with anger. I chose this one of the three that I chose this morning for two reasons. Number one, it's one of the most difficult ones to choose. And number two, frankly, I struggle with this. Anger is an issue. And I have had more than one time in my life when I have made an angry response to something and spent years regretting it. Open my mouth, mouth gets me into more trouble than anything else. And so I picked this because I need to hear what the Bible says about it. The Bible has so much to say about the issue of anger. There is the anger of God, also known as righteous indignation. In Psalm 7 and verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, the Bible says that the Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. So God is both angry every day and he is slow to anger, but he is angry and there is reason why he is angry. The Bible also speaks about human anger, and it's almost always in a negative sense. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain's anger turned into the murder of his brother Abel. In 1 Samuel, King Saul was a man of brooding, explosive rage. We can see that as he picks up the spear and hurls it at his son Jonathan because he wants to get rid of David. Angry and frustrated. Or he hurled at David, sorry. And then speaking to Jonathan later was very angry. The Proverbs and other texts say so much about anger. In Proverbs 14 and verse 29, the Bible says, He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. In Proverbs 29 verse 22, An angry man stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. In Psalm 37, verses 8 and 9, the Bible says this, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. And in James 1, verse 19 and 20, is a passage you probably know. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The reality is, 
The human anger is usually an attempt on our parts to justify ourselves, usually over our wrongdoing. So we get caught doing something wrong, and someone provokes us and says, hey, you're not supposed to be doing that, and we we just get all kind of wound up and get angry because we're trying to justify what we know we shouldn't be doing. Human anger happens because we're trying to obtain vengeance for ourselves because we think we were wronged. And so we're going to take out our vengeance on that person that wrongs us. It's a selfish display because I have not gotten what I think I am entitled to. Jonah the prophet became angry. He thought he had a right to be angry and God rebuked him for it. But there are... In Scripture, a few places where anger is mentioned positively. Again, Christ is the example of perfect, self-controlled anger. Take your Bibles. I want you to see this for yourselves. Mark chapter 3. So flip over in your Bible to Mark chapter 3. And there's an incredible story here. Mark chapter 3. I'm going to read the first six verses here. Speaking of the Lord Jesus again, it says, He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. If you imagine the, the, just a little side here, imagine the, the synagogue where they're sitting. It's a huge, long room with a high ceiling, a bit like this one. And on both sides, there are benches all the way down both sides. And there's pillars about one-third the way in or about a quarter of the way in on both sides. A big open space in the middle. And there's a pulpit pretty much like this one at one end of the room. And everybody sat on the benches on one side, the men on one side and the women on the other side. And I can kind of see as the lights in the middle, there's a bit of a candelabra in the middle of the area so they can see and it close to the desk so the man reading the scrolls could see the scrolls. But the, back, the rest of it's kind of in shadowy area back behind. And Jesus is standing right in the middle of this room and this man with a withered hand comes forward. I don't mean to be cruel, but I can imagine him just standing there with his withered hand waiting. And everybody's watching. And the Bible says, and he said to them, verse 4, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. Can you imagine that moment? Intense silence just kind of hangs over the room. And the Bible says in verse 5, After looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of his heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And in my mind's eye, I can just see the Lord Jesus standing there. He's maybe five feet away from the man with the withered hand. And he slowly looks and slowly turns all the way around. And he looks up and down the aisles. And he can see the Pharisees. And they're pushing back into the darkness, trying to get away from his gaze. And there is absolute control in Jesus. Spiritual self-control, but he is angry at the hardness. He's angry at the hardness of their heart. He's angry at the injustice of what they're doing, using this poor man to try and set him up to trap him. And he's angry. His anger was not driven by a desire to justify himself His anger was at the hardness of their heart. Remember the scene in John chapter 2, different part of the Bible. He goes into the temple courts. And there they've set up all these tables and they have all this money and money changers. And they're selling animals so people can come in and buy an animal and go and offer it in worship. And Jesus becomes angry, takes a cord and makes a whip of cords like a cat of nine tails and goes to that place. I love the scene. He grabs the tables and flips them over and the money goes flying. He takes that whip and he begins to whip one of the backs of those animals and drives them out. Doesn't want to hurt them. He wants to get them out of the room. And you can see the chaos as people and running everywhere. The tables are flying over. Money's going every direction. And the animals are all running through the place. In the middle is Jesus, the sinless, spotless Son of God, standing up in anger because his father's house has been turned into a house of merchandise and sales. 
And the Gentiles who are supposed to have that space to come and stand a little further away to lift up their hearts in prayer cannot do it because of what the Jews have done. Jesus is angry. The Bible says about Jesus in Psalm 69 and verse 9, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So what is godly anger? Our text says, be angry yet without sin. So godly anger is a righteous indignation at sinfulness. Godly anger is a zeal for God, for his holiness and righteousness. Godly anger is a determined, settled conviction against what has been done against God. Godly anger is not a seething, brooding rage. It's the anger of the Lord's people who hate evil. So in our text, what do we do with that? We said before, it's not an active command, go out and get angry. It's a passive command. It literally means allow yourself to become angry, but without sin. This is Christ-like anger. It's exercise in spiritual self-control. So what does it look like? Your practical idea. I become aware. We become aware of something that offends God that's going on inside the church. I become aware of something that has, something that has put aside God's word and God's will for a man-centered, ungodly occurrence within the church. I feel a sense of righteous indignation kind of rising up. Put this way, a holy revulsion. Some of the prosperity gospel, when I, I, every once in a while I see one of those guys on there in their big stadiums and their, in their fancy things. God wants you to be happy and wealthy and wise and God, you're God's child. You have every right to be all the ble- and on they go. And there's a little piece of me just kind of goes, Why? Because I don't like the way he's got some big fancy building, the way he's preaching? No, because he's fleecing the flock. He's ripping them off. He's taking their money. He's preaching something that's completely contrary to the Bible. And there's a sense inside of me that just goes, no, that's wrong. I don't like that. You say, oh, you're getting angry. You shouldn't get angry, you know. No, it's angry when you see something that goes against God's word. It's angry when you see something that God himself gets angry about. You read the passages in Ezekiel, I think it's 23 and 29, speaking about what God will do to ungodly shepherds. God gets angry when shepherds fleece his flock. God gets angry when things go on in his church that go against his holiness and against his righteousness. Some of the prosperity gospel, some of the ungodly things done in churches under the heading, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I came across this thing on YouTube. I just, I couldn't believe what I was watching. People in a church service and there were young girls up on the stage. Apologize for even saying this in a church. They were quirking or twerking, whatever you call it, horrible sexual dance. And they're calling it the gift of the Spirit. That's blasphemy. And there's a little piece of me that just gets angry when I see that. And it's not wrong, but here's where it gets wrong. Here's where the potential. And this is what Paul is saying here. He's saying, be angry and yet do not sin. He draws a very hard line there. He even goes as far as to say, don't let the sun go down on your anger. I feel that sense of rising indignation and anger at those things, but I must not allow that anger to brood and fester within. Paul's logic and argument is that if we allow that anger to become deep-seated, it will distort from godly anger into an ungodly, sinful response from my own heart, and the devil will seize that opportunity to bring out sin in my life. So what do we do with it? I love the story of Jesus in the temple clearing the courts because you take the, the whole story in its, in, its, in its limits. It doesn't end in the temple. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus clears out the temple, drives all the animals out, turns the tables over, and then he goes outside. You know what he does? 
He gathers his disciples together and he begins to teach them about what prayer is. And the new gathering place for prayer is no longer a temple up on a hill made out of marble and gold. The new gathering place for God's people is Jesus Christ himself. And he takes that moment and he uses it and he drives the temple out. He fixes the problem in a sense, but he also uses it in a constructive sense to teach the disciples what prayer really means. We are to use those things in a constructive way. You say, how do you do that? Well, we sense that anger. It's not anger that's selfish. It's anger that what we see that goes against God and against His Word. Homosexual marriage inside the church, in churches in Australia, ought to cause us to have a sense of holy anger. Because that is a blasphemy to God. It's an abomination in His face. For men and women who claim to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ to go and do that is so wrong. And that holy revulsion ought to then be turned into a crying out to God, a pleading with God, a burden on our hearts that says, Lord, you can't let this go on. And we begin to weep and fast and mourn and plead with God to change those things. If I could say it like this, I think the problem, one of the many problems of the church that we live in, is we become so impassive about things that God is nowhere near impassive about. God is not impartial and unmoved by sin. He hates it with a holy anger. And brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm, I'm off my message, it doesn't matter. What's really been pounding home the last couple of days, I've shared it with a couple of you guys, is the sense that, of godliness that needs, it must be a part of the church that we are living in. It must be a part of our lives. There's a desperate need for men and women of God to live godly lives. And part of that godliness is seeing what hates, what God hates, and having the same anger against it, but not to the point where it becomes a foothold for the devil to bring sin out of our lives, but where it drives us to our knees to plead with God, to cry out to God to change what's happening in the church to raise up godly men and women who will say, no, God does not like and God will not tolerate that. We are his representative on this earth, are we not? When they look at us, they're seeing the only 3D image representation of Christ they'll ever see. And if we portray God as being uncaring about sin and uncaring about holiness, we are radically misrepresenting God. Godly anger is always under the control of the Holy Spirit. It's always put off before the day has ended. It moves us to respond in a constructive way. It drives us to prayer and grieving and seeking for God's help. Jesus became angry and drove out the money changers. He became angry at the Pharisees and he healed the man with a withered hand. You say, why not just simply prohibit anger? Why not make it easy? It's just to say, no anger, nowhere. And the reason why not is this. All those warnings about anger, and they're there. But they're all based on man's anger. A human anger at human, what's happened to me. Not what happens to God. So the reason why Paul commands, it's actually an imperative there, be angry and don't sin, is this. It is right that God's people should be zealous for God. The things that offend God and anger God should anger us. It is right and good and godly to be passionate for the glory of God. It's right to allow that holy revulsion to arise in us against things that offend God himself. But the text inspired by the Spirit commands us to be angry but without sin. It must never be an angry, an anger that seeks our own vengeance. 
It must never be an anger that's allowed to settle deep in our hearts and brood and boil over into rage. It is an anger that must move us to preach the truth against error. It's an anger that must move us to pray with greater fervency against the sin that offends God. Paul says, become angry and do not sin. Must put off uncontrolled anger. That's the wrong side of it. That's what so many of those texts I read you in Psalms and Proverbs are talking about. Human, man, mankind, or manly, no, not manly, man-centered, that's a better way to put it, man-centered anger that's driven by selfishness. We must put that off. We must allow the Holy Spirit's controlled anger only at those things which offend the holiness of God and God himself. And we use them to move us to pray and to preach and act constructively instead. Last thing, number six, verse 32. We must exercise Christ-like forgiveness. He says there, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as Christ, God in Christ, has also forgiven you. Remember again the three motives I gave at the beginning, that why Paul gives us the text for why we must live as new creatures in the new community of faith. In verse 25, because we are members of one another. In verse 30, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And in verse 32, God in Christ has forgiven you. Why is it? that Paul must make this most obvious command to the church. I mean, you think about it. Who in the whole world knows more about forgiveness than the Christian? Or do we? Do we really know what it means to be forgiven? We were talking last Sunday night about the omniscience of God, God's all-knowing of everything. And we said, listen, in God's grace, He knows every single sin listed and numbered that you and I have committed. In His grace, He doesn't even allow us to understand fully the full depths of our sinfulness. And God in grace accepts, if you like, a blanket statement, confession of sin, and a plea for forgiveness. We don't sit down and outline, you know, day one, hour one, I did this, 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 and this. Day one, hour two, I did this, 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 and this. We don't go through all that. He accepts a blanket statement, Lord, forgive me for the sin that I have committed. When we come to Christ, that's God's grace. We have been forgiven for more than we even know and understand. And so you say, why is it, Paul, you have to stop and write the words on the inspiration of the Spirit, forgive one another? Surely we in the church ought to be those that know more about forgiveness and can extend what we have received freely and willingly. But brothers and sisters in Christ, the the real tragedy is For a lot of Christians, forgiveness is withheld. I won't forgive. You know, he wronged me. You know, she said this. You know, if you really understood what just just how nasty that person was to me, you'd understand why I won't forgive. Well, the first question you have to ask yourself is, how does God forgive us? God forgives us by... God forgives us when he comes in grace and he brings the truth of the gospel to us. God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, convicts us of our sin. He allows us to see enough of our sinfulness that we know, we desperately know that we need a Savior. He then presents Christ as the perfect, sinless, spotless Savior, the Son of God who was crucified to pay the penalty for our sin. And in grace, he reaches down and he imparts the faith by which we then reach up to God and cry out for forgiveness. And when we forgive, we confess our sinfulness. We come to God and say, I'm sorry, you're right, and I'm wrong. Your holiness has been offended by my actions and my thoughts and my words. I have sinned against you. And we cry out to for God for forgiveness. And we strive in repentance, to not commit the same sin again. But here's the point I want to get across. God is ready every moment 
to forgive those who come to him. God rises, if as it were, even as we're forming the words to ask for forgiveness, God is rising to come forward and extend that forgiveness to us and give it to us. And the Bible tells us that in the Psalm 103, that as far as the east is from the, far, the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He is willing immediately to forgive. I love the scene in the prodigal son story, you know, at the very end. The prodigal son goes off with the, with the dad's money, spends all the money on wild, or the Bible says riotous living. Runs out of money, there's a famine. I love God's timing. He waits until he's right out of money, then he brings a famine. And the kid's got nothing left to eat, nothing to do with his hand, got no money left. The only job he can find in the whole place is feeding slop to the pigs, which for a Jewish man would have been the worst and the lowest job. It's all he can find. And I can see him there day after day pouring in buckets of slop. And the Bible says he longed just to fill his stomach with the junk that the pigs were eating. And he gets up and he says, my father has many rooms. I can go to my father. I will seek his forgiveness. I will make, have him make me like one of the servants. And he goes home. And I can see that moment as a boy is walking down the road and the dad is sitting there and he's waiting on the front porch. If they had front porches back then. On the front veranda, if it was Nazi's story. And he can see a way off in the distance, a little tiny speck walking across the fields towards dad's house. And the Bible describes that he got up and he ran to meet him. And you know how you go home to your parents and you have to, you know, make something right? And then all the way home, you're rehearsing in the back of your head. Okay, well, this is what I'll say. I'll, I'll say, uh, Dad, I've done this, I've done that. You know, Dad, I, I shouldn't have done this. And we start, we have it all worked out. We know exactly what we're going to say. And he comes flying down the road, and the, and the dad's coming, run the other way to meet him. And he starts to give him the little speech, you know, you know I've, I have sinned against you and against heaven, and I have done this and done that. And the dad's not even really hardly listening. He knows the son is repentant because he's come home. And the dad is so longing to forgive him, he's grabbing for robes to cover up the, the rags he's wearing. He's grabbing a ring off his finger and he's pushing on the son's finger and saying, you're a son again. And he calls for sandals. That's very significant in that culture. He puts sandals on his feet to remind him that you're not a servant, you're not a slave, you're my son. This my son who was dead is alive. And that's the way God forgives us. He is ready at any moment to reach out in grace and forgive those who will seek it from him. What's that got to do with this? The text we're in. Paul says in verse 32... Forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Do people wrong us in the church? Sadly, yes. Do people do things in the church for which forgiveness must be asked? Yes. Having a forgiving spirit doesn't mean I just forgive anybody who sins against me without any recourse or any action. That's a misunderstanding because God does not do that. And look what he says. He says, just as God in Christ forgave you. So in the very same way, in the same manner, in the same grace, the same kindness, the same love that Christ forgave you, so you also ought to forgive one another. God does wait for a confession. God does wait till he hears, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Brother and sister in Christ, we ought to do the same. But do it the way God does it. Don't do the way we do it. We go, well, when he comes in here, and after he has knelt down, and after he has kissed my ring, and after he has made a significant retribution and a few extra payments to satisfy my ego, then I'll forgive him. Maybe, I think, if I have to. That's how we do it, don't we? We sit back and we think, well, I'm in the right, so I'll hold out for the best deal I can get. Does God do that with you? No. 
He said, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you, you forgive one another. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are, those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, we are new creatures in Christ. We have been reconciled to God. More has been forgiven this way in each of our lives than we will ever truly understand and know. And he says, in the same way that God has graciously forgiven you, forgive one another. Let's put it on the line for a second. Maybe you're sitting in this room this morning and there's somebody in this room that you hold a grudge against, that you will not forgive for something that was said or done. Let me ask you two questions, one to you, one to the other person. Are you ready to forgive? Are you willing? No, no. Are you eager to forgive? Is there forgiveness in your heart towards that person already? So that when he asks, before he can even get the words out of his mouth, he can, yes, I forgive you. Of course. The other one, are you willing to go and say, I was wrong? And seek forgiveness. Because when the church is torn apart by unreconciliation, when members come in and will not speak to one another, how do we sit brothers and sisters around that table and take the bread and partake of it and I love the fact that we take it and we pass to the next person and they take it and eat and pass it on don't take this the wrong way I loved our old brethren tradition we had actual loaf of bread where we just tear it in half and everybody would take out of the same loaf and I know there are health concerns and so on about doing that I love that picture because it got the idea right across that we were all sharing in Christ from the same loaf as we did that. How do you break bread every two weeks in this church if there's an unforgiving spirit in your heart against somebody else in this room? It goes against the gospel on all levels. We are... New creatures in Christ. I keep saying that. Why? Because I need to hear it. And God has called us to live as members of the same body together. In love, in forgiveness, in speaking the truth. Occasionally in holy anger at what offends God. But turning that anger into prayer and pleading with God to put it right. But also he calls us to live with forgiving hearts and forgiving spirits one with the other. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray and then uh, we'll sing the benediction and then we'll take a short break before our QBM.